Day 5 of Totus Tuus' Novena With quotes from John Paul II's encyclical Redemptor Hominis When we penetrate by means of the continually and rapidly increasing experience of the human family into the mystery of Jesus Christ we understand with greater clarity that there is at the basis of all these ways that the church of our time must follow in accordance with the wisdom of Pope Paul VI one single way. It is the way that has stood the test of centuries, and it is also the way of the future. Christ the Lord indicated this way especially when, as the Council teaches, by his incarnation, he, the Son of God, in a certain way, united himself with each man. The Church, therefore, sees its fundamental task in enabling that union to be brought about and renewed continually. The Church wishes to serve this single end, that each person may be able to find Christ, in order that Christ may walk with each person the path of life, with the power of the truth about man and the world that is contained in the mystery of the Incarnation and the Redemption, and with the power of the love that is radiated by that truth. against a background of the ever-increasing historical processes which seem at the present time to have results especially within the spheres of various systems, ideological concepts of the world and regimes, Jesus Christ becomes, in a way, newly present, in spite of all his apparent absences, in spite of all the limitations of the presence and of the institutional activity of the Church. Jesus Christ becomes present with the power of the truth and the love that are expressed in him with unique, unrepeatable fullness, in spite of the shortness of his life on earth and the even greater shortness of his public activity. Jesus Christ is the chief way for the Church. He himself is our way to the Father's house and is the way to each man. On this way leading from Christ to man, on this way on which Christ unites himself with each man. Nobody can halt the church. This is an exigency of man's temporal welfare and of his eternal welfare. Out of regard for Christ and in view of the mystery that constitutes the church's own life, the church cannot remain insensible to whatever serves man's true welfare any more than she can remain indifferent to what threatens it. In various passages in its documents, the Second Vatican Council has expressed the Church's fundamental solicitude that life in the world should conform more to man's surpassing dignity in all its aspects, so as to make that life ever more human. This is the solicitude of Christ himself, the Good Shepherd of all men. In the name of this solicitude, as we read in the Council's pastoral constitution, the Church must in no way be confused with the political community, nor bound to any political system. She is at once a sign and a safeguard of the transcendence of the human person. Accordingly, what is in question here is man in all his truth, in his full magnitude. We are not dealing with an abstract man, but the real, concrete, historical man. We are dealing with each man, for each one is included in the mystery of the redemption, 
and with each one Christ has united himself forever through this mystery. Every man comes into the world through being conceived in his mother's womb and being born of his mother, and precisely on account of the mystery of the redemption is entrusted to the solicitude of the church. Her solicitude is about the whole man and is focused on him in an altogether special manner. The object of her care is man in his unique, unrepeatable human reality, which keeps intact the image and likeness of God himself. The Council points out this very fact when, speaking of that likeness, it recalls that man is the only creature on earth that God willed for itself. Man, as willed by God, as chosen by him from eternity, and called, destined for grace and glory. This is each man, the most concrete man, the most real. This is man in all the fullness of the mystery in which he has become a sharer in Jesus Christ, the mystery in which each one of the 4,000 million human beings living on our planet has become a sharer from the moment he is conceived beneath the heart of his mother. The Church cannot abandon man, for his destiny, that is to say his election, calling, birth and death, salvation or perdition, is so closely and unbreakably linked with Christ. We are speaking precisely of each man on this planet, this earth that the Creator gave to the first man, saying to the man and the woman, subdue it and have dominion. Each man, in all the unrepeatable reality of what he is and what he does, of his intellect and will, of his conscience and heart. Man, who in his reality has, because he is a person, a history of his life that is his own, and, most important, a history of his soul that is his own. Man, who, in keeping with the openness of his spirit within, and also with the many diverse needs of his body and his existence in time, writes this personal history of his through numerous bonds, contacts, situations and social structures linking him with other men, beginning to do so from the first moment of his existence on earth, from the moment of his conception and birth. Man, in the full truth of his existence, of his personal being and also of his community and social being, in the sphere of his own family, in the sphere of society and very diverse contexts, in the sphere of his own nation or people, perhaps still only that of his clan or tribe, and in the sphere of the whole of mankind. This man is the primary route that the Church must travel in fulfilling her mission. He is the primary and fundamental way for the Church, the way traced out by Christ himself, the way that leads invariably through the mystery of the Incarnation and the Redemption. It was precisely this man, in all the truth of his life, in his conscience, in his continual inclination to sin, and at the same time in his continual aspiration to truth, the good, the beautiful, justice and love, that the Second Vatican Council had before its eyes when in outlying his situation in the modern world, it always passed from the external elements of this situation 
to the truth within humanity. In man himself, many elements wrestle with one another. Thus, on the one hand, as a creature he experiences his limitations in a multitude of ways. On the other, he feels himself to be boundless in his desires and summoned to a higher life. Pulled by manifold attractions, he is constantly forced to choose among them and to renounce some. Indeed, as a weak and sinful being, he often does what he would not and fails to do what he would. Hence he suffers from internal divisions and from these flows so many and such great discords in society. This man is the way for the church, a way that, in a sense, is the basis of all the other ways that the church must walk. Because man, every man without any exception whatever, has been redeemed by Christ. And because with man, with each man without any exception whatever, Christ is in a way united, even when man is unaware of it. Christ, who died and was raised up for all, provides man, each man and every man, with the light and the strength to measure up to his supreme calling. Since this man is the way for the church, the way for her daily life and experience, for her mission and toil, the church of today must be aware in an always new manner of man's situation. That means that she must be aware of his possibilities, which keep returning to their proper bearings and thus revealing themselves. She must likewise be aware of the threats to man and of all that seems to oppose the endeavor to make human life ever more human and make every element of this life correspond to man's true dignity. In a word, she must be aware of all that is opposed to that process. Accordingly, while keeping alive in our memory the picture that was so perspicaciously and authoritatively traced by the Second Vatican Council, we shall try once more to adapt it to the signs of the times and to the demands of the situation which is continually changing and evolving in certain directions. The man of today seems ever to be under threat from what he produces, that is to say, from the result of the work of his hands, and even more so, of the work of his intellect and the tendencies of his will. All too soon, and often in an unforeseeable way, what this manifold activity of man yields is not only subjected to alienation in the sense that it is simply taken away from the person who produces it, but rather it turns against man himself, at least in part, through the indirect consequences of its effects returning on himself. It is, or can be, directed against him. This seems to make up the main chapter of the drama of present-day human existence in its broadest and universal dimension. Man, therefore, lives increasingly in fear. He is afraid that what he produces, not all of it of course, or even most of it, but part of it, and precisely that part that contains a special share of his genius and initiative, can radically turn against himself. He is afraid that it can become the means and instrument for an unimaginable self-destruction, compared with which all the cataclysms and catastrophes of history known to us seem to fade away. 
This gives rise to a question. Why is it that the power given to man from the beginning, by which he was to subdue the earth, turns against himself, producing an understandable state of disquiet, of conscious or unconscious fear and of menace, which in various ways is being communicated to the whole of the present-day human family and is manifesting itself under various aspects? This state of menace for man, from what he produces, shows itself in various directions and various degrees of intensity. We seem to be increasingly aware of the fact that the exploitation of the earth, the planet on which we are living, demands rational and honest planning. At the same time, exploitation of the earth, not only from industrial but also for military purposes and the uncontrolled development of technology outside the framework of a long-range, authentically humanistic plan, often bring with them a threat to man's natural environment, alienate him in his relations with nature and remove him from nature. Man often seems to see no other meaning in his natural environment than what serves for immediate use and consumption. Yet it was the Creator's will that man should communicate with nature as an intelligent and noble master and guardian, and not as a heedless exploiter and destroyer. The development of technology and the development of contemporary civilization, which is marked by the ascendancy of technology, demand a proportional development of morals and ethics. For the present, this last development seems unfortunately to be always left behind. Accordingly, in spite of the marvel of this progress, in which it is difficult not to see also authentic signs of man's greatness, signs that in their creative seeds were revealed to us in the pages of the book of Genesis, as early as where it describes man's creation. This progress cannot fail to give rise to disquiet on many counts. The first reason for disquiet concerns the essential and fundamental question. Does this progress, which has man for its author and promoter, make human life on earth more human in every aspect of that life? Does it make it more worthy of man? There can be no doubt that in various aspects it does. But the question keeps coming back with regard to what is most essential. Whether in the context of this progress, man, as man, is becoming truly better. That is to say, more mature spiritually, more aware of the dignity of his humanity, more responsible, more open to others, especially the neediest and the weakest, and readier to give and to aid all. This question must be put by Christians precisely because Jesus Christ has made them so universally sensitive about the problem of man. The same question must be asked by all men, especially those belonging to the social groups that are dedicating themselves actively to development and progress today. As we observe and take part in these processes, we cannot let ourselves be taken over merely by euphoria or be carried away by one-sided enthusiasm for our conquests, but we must all ask ourselves with absolute honesty, objectivity and a sense of moral responsibility the essential questions concerning man's situation today and in the future. Do all the conquests attained until now and those projected for the future for technology accord with man's moral and spiritual progress. In this context, 
Is man as man developing and progressing, or is he regressing and being degraded in his humanity? In men and in man's world, which in itself is a world of moral good and evil, does good prevail over evil? In men and among men, is there a growth of social love, of respect for the rights of others, for every man, nation, and people? Or on the contrary, is there an increase of various degrees of selfishness, exaggerated nationalism instead of authentic love of country, and also the propensity to dominate others beyond the limits of one's legitimate rights and merits, and the propensity to exploit the whole of material progress, and that in the technology of production for the exclusive purpose of dominating others, or of favouring this or that imperialism? These are the essential questions that the Church is bound to ask herself, since they are being asked with greater or less explicitness by the thousands of millions of people now living in the world. The subject of development and progress is on everybody's lips, and appears in the columns of all the newspapers and other publications in all the languages of the modern world. Let us not forget, however, that this subject contains not only affirmations and certainties. But also questions and points of anguish disquiet. The latter are no less important than the former. They fit in with the dialectical nature of human knowledge, and even more with the fundamental need for solicitude by man for man, for his humanity, and for the future of people on earth. Inspired by eschatological faith, the Church considers an essential, unbreakably united element of her mission: this solicitude for man. For his humanity, for the future of men on earth, and therefore also for the course set for the whole of development and progress, she finds the principle of this solicitude in Jesus Christ Himself, as the Gospels witness. This is why she wishes to make it grow continually through her relationship with Christ, reading man's situation in the modern world in accordance with the most important signs of our time. Let us pray, O Lord Jesus Christ, keep us in your love. Let us hear your voice and believe what you say, for you alone have the words of life. Teach us how to profess our faith, bestow our love, and impart our hope to others. Make us convincing witnesses to your gospel in a world so much in need of your saving grace. Make us the new people of the Beatitudes, that we may be the salt of the earth and the light of the world at the beginning of the third Christian millennium. Amen. Mary, Mother of Christ and of the Church, pray for us. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.